1: getting riled up on a friday afternoon and what's not to get riled up about taylor when you're talking leverage loans <laughs> well we're gonna go to molly smith she's our corporate finance reporter here at bloomberg news joining us on the phone here in new york molly great to be with you so remind us just at the top here leverage loans a massive market why, why do we care about them essentially like where do they fit into the the broader wall street picture
2: Hey, uh, well, as you said, yeah, this is a massive market. We're talking now at least the same size as possibly larger than the high-yield market. Uh, Leverage loans have become a huge part of companies' financing as the Fed has been hiking interest rates and investors have been seeking floating rate debt. Um, The loan structure certainly provides you a bit more of a buffer in a rising interest rate environment, and that's why we've seen leverage loans. Um, become one of the best-performing fixed-income asset classes this year.
3: So they perform better, perhaps, than regular bonds and rising interest rates, um, but it's very interesting because in the late stage of the business cycle, you sometimes start to see investors not quite measure out their risk and reward. Maybe they're coming with fewer protections, they're coming at covenant light. Why are these investors starting to push back now and demand what they think is a fair valuation?
2: Right. So we've started to see um, a greater percentage of investors um, demanding better pricing terms um, really throughout the summer. Some of that has just been from uh, just the supply and demand technicals that uh, investors have had a bit more uh, of that in their favor and a better balance. But also, you know, with you start to get a little nervous when you're getting toward the end of a credit cycle or what appears to be. And with so many issuers going toward loan-only structures, when you don't have um, another debt, um, any other junior debt below you, um, that can be concerning when there's not a buffer to absorb some of those losses when a borrower defaults.
1: And Molly, I know one of the reasons that people track this so closely, and we should point out, Taylor, that this story, Molly's story today, is the 10th most read story in all of the Bloomberg universe today over the last eight hours, so clearly something that people are tracking. One of the reasons they look at it, I go back to my private equity days, Molly, these are often the instruments that are used to fund a a leveraged buyout, as the name uh, might Mm -hmm. tip you off to. Uh, What does it tell us about the appetite on on the part of the private equity? Firms who use these instruments, what, how are they doing at this point in the cycle?
2: Well, these are really the kinds of deals exactly that investors are pushing back on. It's a lot of these leverage buyouts, uh, LBOs, as you said that tend to come with more aggressive terms, the covenant light that Taylor had mentioned. And when you're uh, you know trying to put that up in this late in the cycle, investors are starting to get a bit weary and say, like, no, you know, we want better pricing, a bigger discount, a right. uh, stronger call protection. Because what and, we
1: should point out, Mike, what Covenant Light basically means is that there aren't as many protections for the investors if the earnings fall and it becomes more difficult it becomes a, a more difficult investment. Is that right?
2: Exactly. Yes. Uh, so covenants are, you know, uh, just meant to be investor protections, like protecting against, uh, you know, a drop in earnings is one such uh, covenant that can be in bond or loan documents. And you've really seen the quality of those documents deteriorate in the loan market, especially.
1: And that really jumped out at me, too, because, of course, it takes us back to the LBO boom of 06 and 07. And one of the things that jumped out at me in Molly's story was that uh, 80% of leverage loans are covenant light, cov light. Uh, in 06, that proportion would have been less than 25%. Wow. And that was a time when people were like, money's free. Let's do this. Let's do this deal. This is amazing.
3: <laughs> well, and probably I wonder if some of that is leading to reasons why we're seeing such outperformance. Yeah. Molly, can you talk us about the outperformance, especially relative to some of like treasuries or high yield debt?
2: Exactly. So it's almost from that kind of perspective, it may seem like investors are turning somewhat of a blind eye to the risks that we've discussed and really just throwing their money into loans because in fixed income this year, uh, it's been really rough. I mean, investment grade for the first half of this year was, I mean, down at least two and a half percent. Treasuries have been, uh, you know, a tough asset class to invest in as well high yield, kind of flat for the year. And we've definitely seen uh, the struggle in emerging markets, uh, especially recently. So for fixed income investors, loans have really been like one of the few safe places to
3: go. Well, one of the few safe places go in the past. Going forward, what are you hearing about how they perform um, going forward, especially as you said we might be nearing the end of the credit cycle? Uh, What happens when things turn?
2: Right. So when we're looking at these kinds of deals that are really putting a ton of leverage on to the transaction and the borrower, and especially if you don't have that junior debt below you, that means as the loan investor, your recoveries are looking a lot lower than what they historically have been. And in that same Moody's report that Jason had just referenced, that Moody's had discussed that idea as well. Like For example, on the first lien tranche, maybe you used to get um, Around uh, 77 cents, now looking at closer to 61 cents on the dollar. And for the second lien, even worse. Um, Maybe used to get 43 cents, now likely around 14. So that's just, it's just that much worse when the cycle does turn.
1: Right. Great stuff. Molly Smith, corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone here on a Friday afternoon. So, Taylor, uh, records, records. Tell, yeah, tell <laughs> me. Talk to me. Tons
3: record highs pretty much across all the major indices. The one that caught my eye was the Russell 2000. It was interesting because yesterday we had the weaker dollar, but um, still some gains in the Russell. That is happening again. We are at a record high. And the NASDAQ, Jason, uh, the NASDAQ is now at a record high again as well, and some of the biggest movers – that we would know um, in the NASDAQ are some of those big tech companies like Netflix. Everyone's sort of doing well.
1: Right. And, you know, we've heard a lot about retail this week. And so it is a broad-based series of gains. It seems like we're obviously going to be digging into that a lot through the course of the afternoon as we get about an hour and a half away now from the close of trading. This is Bloomberg.
4: If you drive
3: a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, tax your seat If you get oh, to tax call. the feed. Here we go. It is always a good day on a Friday. You know, it's not even tax day and I feel like we're always talking about taxes here. Well,
1: especially the last couple days when everybody's taxes are going to go up. We're right around here, Taylor.
3: So we have Laura Davidson joining us. She's our tax reporter over here for Bloomberg News. Laura, you had another great story out about how we have four days now uh, to try to beat that salt cap limit. Can you just quickly, though, recap for us what we got yesterday and how that folds into today? Uh, we did get those headlines yesterday. That the IRS now is trying to block New York and New Jersey, whose states have tried to bypass some of this salt cap. What does all this mean?
0: So the, the tax law from 2017 really cut back the amount of property taxes, state income taxes that people can deduct. So um, high-tax states like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut pass some state laws that say, hey, we can kind of help our residents out and uh, create these state tax credit programs that will allow them to, uh, to turn these payments into charitable contributions, and they can deduct that on their federal return. The IRS said, "Hey, look, this is no good." But one thing that's interesting is the effective date for this regulation is August 27th. So you have until Monday uh, to to potentially be able to to make one of these payments and get the deduction. It's a little bit of a hail mary pass. You have to be in a place where they already have this fund set up and they're able to take your payment. Um, so it's uh, you know, but it's the kind of thing that you know. Your tax advisor may say, hey, yeah, you know, if you act quickly, you can uh, you can save a little bit of money on your taxes. All
1: right. So let's bring in a guy who can tell us exactly whether this is indeed going on. Michael Daddio is principal of tax and business services at Markham. Michael, is your phone ringing a lot? How did you find time to talk to us here?
5: The phone is ringing off the hook. This is uh, the year that just keeps on giving. Because yeah. The service just keeps giving guidance to us. Uh, has spread out over a period of time and just raises additional questions. So it's, it's been busy.
3: And, Michael, I mean, you say it's busy. I want to get a sense of how much of a scramble it is, especially because we just heard from Laura that some cities and places and systems don't even have it set up yet where you could file by the 27th, even if you wanted to.
5: Yeah, I mean, the uh, that whole issue about the effective date – It sounds as if, and I think uh, the Treasury Secretary uh, kind of issued a statement that indicated that he believes the proposed regs really apply to states like Connecticut, New York, New Jersey that passed a workaround. There are other states that have tax credit programs, particularly with respect to educational contributions, where where they're already set up. So I think. You know, a lot of like New Jersey, Connecticut, New York don't really have the tax exempt organizations set up, whereas these other states do. So this could really be a last ditch effort for them to uh, make contributions because the regs themselves don't seem to exempt those prior programs.
1: And so, Michael, just going down into the weeds a little bit here. So what have some jurisdictions done? I mean, Scarsdale, I believe, has already created – it's a charitable situation, right, where people can essentially donate and then get an offset to their taxes? Keep me honest
4: here.
5: Yeah, effectively what the legislation in the uh, – particularly in Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey did is they allowed municipalities to set up uh, tax-exempt organizations – uh, you then make contributions to the tax-exempt organization. You say it is a charitable contribution. So, therefore, if you're over the $10,000 limit for adjusting uh, uh, your taxes on Schedule A, uh, that doesn't apply because this is a charitable contribution. It comes off uh, as a deduction other, other place on the Schedule A. And uh, then the municipality gives you a percentage credit depending upon – You know, where you are, the credit may be 80 percent, 90 percent, 85 percent, depends on the the state. So the state makes – or the municipality makes out a bit because the credit that they're giving you is a little bit less than the the, uh, cash you're putting out as the, the, quote, contribution. But you you as a taxpayer do better because if you just paid it as a property tax or an income tax – Uh, you'd be limited by the $10,000 deduction, so you'd get none none of it, and now you're trying to get the charitable contribution deduction. Right.
3: Laura, in your story, you've talked a lot about New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, passing laws to allow for charitable contributions. Um, I remember a while ago New York had floated the idea of a payroll tax as, again, another way to sort of get around these. What other states and what other ideas are being floated out there to also help offset this additional burden?
0: So the payroll taxes is certainly out there. That is still happening. Basically, what happens there is your employer would have to opt into this program, to sort of pay your taxes for you and, and give you a credit so you could get a deduction. It's, it's a little bit complicated how it works. The issue there, though, is that employers to do that would probably have to lower your pay. Um, so that's a, that's a really hard sell to employees to say, hey, we'll pay your taxes, but we're going to pay you $10,000 less. Right. Um, even if you end up being a good deal, that's a really hard, hard sell uh, to prospective employees. Um, so th- we'll see how that pans out. It's not super popular yet. No companies have until December to sign up for that. Um, also in Connecticut, and Mike can tell you, they have a- another tax program that they pass there for owners of pass-throughs. So these are you know partnerships S corporations. Basically kind of a similar thing a- of a way to uh, reduce the tax burden so it's paid at the business level instead of the individual, kind of an incentive to keep um, business owners in the state um, instead of having them flee to lower tax states.
1: That's Laura Davidson, our tax reporter down in Washington, D.C. for Bloomberg News, joining us uh, on the phone, as well as Michael Daddio, Principal of Tax and Business Services. Uh, he is based in Connecticut, joining us on the phone as well. This is a storyteller that is not going on. It's been amazing uh, just to watch it on the Bloomberg, how high it bounces. And
3: I can't wait until five or 10 years from now we can go back and analyze the demographic shifts. Because yeah. I know, for example, in Illinois, after a lot of their budget problems the last few years, you did see some out-migration. Everyone keeps threatening to leave, but you really wonder, would you really leave New York? So I wonder again, in a few years from now, how we can track the demographic shifts, right. and if it really does come down to that, that people do end up wanting to leave or not.
1: Well, and it, there's also, obviously, as there it seems to always be these days, a political element to this as well. You know, this was seemingly very targeted It's one of a number of things that have come down the political pipe. But, you know, it really is Pike. It is starting to uh, hit people in the pocketbook, and it may affect home sales as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Wow. Some soulful music to bring in our next guest. Uh, first joining us, Michael McKee. I have been seeing his handsome face and listening to the sultry sounds of his voice uh, all over the past couple of days. He is out at the Kansas City Feds Annual Symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And sitting right next to me and Taylor Riggs here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio is Matt Bosler, Federal Reserve reporter. I want to go out to you first, Mr. McKee. Uh, You've had just a bunch of rock star interviews so far, but let's start uh, with Chairman Powell. What did you hear from him today that caught your attention?
6: Uh, basically that it's steady as she goes. There's not a whole lot of news in it. Uh, he did discuss the economy at length, which is kind of different. Uh, people weren't sure he was going to do that, given the fact that markets often misinterpret. But he was very careful to say, uh, what we're doing now is working and there are risks to doing something else. So we're going to stick with what our plan is.
1: And so... It- you know, given that you're there, were people to you know sort of sitting around being like, "All right, yawn," you know, let's go go for a hike, or um, what? What was the sort of the mood there?
6: I think people were interested in his argument and interested in some of the historical comparisons he drew. He went through the, uh, the, the great inflation of the 1960s and 70s and then the great moderation under Alan Greenspan and how the Fed reacted in both cases, sometimes correctly, sometimes wrong. Uh, you know, what people liked was the analogies he used. He used a lot of nautical analogies, steering by the stars in particular, uh, talking about R-star and U-star and P-star, uh, the various nicknames for concepts the Fed discusses. Uh, they found that interesting but there was no real conclusion to it no change in thinking so people were kind of ready okay we've heard it now let's move on to the topic of the day yeah
3: well and uh powell might have been a little bit quiet but mike you did get some news from some of the other interviews you did i'm thinking loretta mester robert kaplan what were your key takeaways from those interviews
6: well, you know, it's basically that those who think we should raise rates still think we should raise rates. And Jim Bullard, who doesn't think we should be raising at all, still thinks we shouldn't be raising at all. I saw some analysis earlier today that said the markets moved a little bit in a hawkish direction because of the interviews that we were doing. But you have to realize those people were already calling for higher rates. So it really isn't a surprise that they have stuck with that call because there's no been no change in the economy. Growth has been strong as predicted. Inflation has been uh, relatively stable as predicted and until there's a change it's not likely that most members of the open market committee are going to change their view jim bullard a perfect example he's been saying for years we shouldn't raise rates at all because there's not a problem with inflation and interest rates uh as a whole are lower than they have been in the past and he's sticking to that call And we're
3: also joined here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York by Matt Bosler. He's our Federal Reserve reporter. Matt, what did you make of all of this as it plays back here in New York, both in terms of markets and then the comments we just heard about rates and inflation?
7: It was interesting because, as Mike said, there was a little bit of a hawkish market reaction this morning after some of those interviews. Um, Short-term interest rates went up a little bit. And then when Jay Powell spoke, they actually went back down. Uh, So that was initially taken as dovish, but now they're back up to the levels where they were this morning after some of those initial interviews. So I guess on net, the takeaway for investors out this way is maybe a a slightly hawkish message from the Fed, uh, all things considered today. Uh, The interesting thing was, so Jay Powell, as Mike said, kind of laid out how they're looking at the economy, um, sort of the framework that they're using. Uh, but we got a little bit more color on, you know, putting that into practice from some of the other Fed officials today, and so that kind of leans in a hawkish direction.
1: All told. So, Mike, got to ask you, how? What else are people talking about? sort of behind the scenes again you know kind of outside of the panels you know you mentioned a little bit of the reaction to Powell himself but you know what what's being talked about over coffee and, uh, and over drinks and uh on those aforementioned hikes if anybody's doing that I'm just jealous that you know people are out there in the mountains clearly I keep bringing it up
6: yeah they're they're, they're having lunch right now and so they're going to be leaving on hikes in about 40 or 45 minutes <laughs> if you can get here Jason okay. we'll, we'll save a spot for you uh going up into the mountains Uh, I think they've obviously been talking about Trump and tariffs, but uh, from an economist's point of view. And what I I mean by that is that they're saying, you know, it's really hard to model the effects of these things because there's so many different supply chains involved. And some people absorb costs and some people pass on costs and some people change the supply chain. So it's it's really hard to know what the impact is going to be. They don't think it's going to be large unless the uh, trade wars escalate. Uh, The other thing they're talking a lot about about is emerging markets and the impact that the U.S. has on other markets because the world is dollarized, basically, and so many borrow in dollars that if the Fed keeps raising rates and we do have any kind of issues, uh, you already see it in Turkey and Argentina, uh, then maybe people could have trouble paying back their loans. General consensus is, uh, as John Connolly once said, it's our dollar, but your problem. It's your bad policies that lead you to borrow excessively. And it's our responsibility to raise rates for the United States. But those are kind of the two things that people have been talking about beyond the conference topic and whether or not the Fed raises rates in September and December.
3: And bringing this full circle, when we just heard Mike McKee talk about uncertainties that relates to emerging markets and tariffs, Uh, Matt Bosler, you had an interesting story out yesterday about how Powell's speech uh, mirrors a 1998 paper that reflects a similar debate here about aggressive policy in the face of uncertainty. Uh, What was that about?
7: He alluded to that a little bit in the speech today, actually, uh, where he was talking about inflation expectations and how, um, you know, if you start to see movement in inflation expectations, that's when kind of all bets are off. So the standard story goes that, you know, if you're not sure about things like exactly where the natural rate of unemployment is, for example, you tread lightly, you go cautiously. Um, But the flip side of that is if you start to see inflation expectations go up, for example— then you you realize you might be misestimating that natural rate of unemployment, and it actually um, you know, begs for a more aggressive response and kind of ditching that cautious playbook. And so that was something he alluded to. Obviously, we're not seeing much of a pickup in inflation expectations right now, mm-hmm. so that's maybe a story for another day, but it does kind of put that on the radar as something to keep an eye on.
1: Matt Boser, our Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent, joining us from Jackson Hole. Mike will have an interview with Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic coming up at just after 4 p.m. Wall Street time. Looking forward to that. We're going to get. Let Mike go and prep and get all pretty for that as well. Taylor, interesting comments. Yeah, I like this.
3: you know, and one thing that we didn't quite have the chance to get to when we spoke with Yelena Shelyecheva, our Bloomberg economist earlier this week, was about structural changes and how that impacts some of the models that we're looking at. And if there has been a structural change, do you need a new model? We just right. spoke with Matt about uncertainties about where the neutral rate is. Uh, so I'd be interested as well to see what else we could glean from that.
1: A wow, little Tom Petty on a Friday afternoon. The night watchman, the modern night watchman, Taylor, has to do with cybersecurity. That is for sure. And so we bring in near Pollock. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Exabeam, joining us on the phone from San Mateo, California. Near, great to be with you. Uh, you are at the center of obviously something that concerns all of us on a daily, if not hourly, basis. You just closed a new round of funding. You've got some huge backers behind you, including Lightspeed Venture Partners. So where does Exabeam fit into the new ecosystem around cybersecurity?
8: Hey, hi, Jason. Hi, Taylor. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. So um, Exabeam, we're in that cybersecurity market. We're in what's called security management. In essence, a lot of the enterprises out there that are afraid of the cyber threats have put a lot of different investments. In um, security controls if it's firewalls or it's antivirus capabilities and, and the threats are complicated they could be coming from mobile in the cloud or within their data centers or even their corporate networks and we are the ones that try to make sense of all that find those adversaries be it the russians be it a cyber crime ring somewhere and we got to we get to get a front seat to manage that security posture
3: so near what about your business makes you different or better than some of the other competitors out there
8: so we were built, you know, we have a modern security uh, platform. We were built um, natively that combines big data. You know, if you think about it, it's today it's a big data platform, big data problem. You have multiple data sets coming from cloud, mobile, anywhere. Um, we use artificial intelligence, really trying to remove the human out of the equation to being able to combat threats and also automate the response to make sure that it's not humans condemning investigations and mitigations, but it's the machine doing it for them. So we're kind of built on a modern security
1: stack to be able to do that. So, Neera, we've been talking today in part because the stock is up so dramatically about Splunk and where it sits uh, in the market. It it feels like you guys are, are pretty unabashedly taking them on full frontal. Tell us how that matchup goes.
8: Sure. So, you know, we're smaller than Splunk. We're a lot earlier than Splunk. We also maniacally, we're, we're early stage. We're five years old, to give you a sense. So, yes, we've done a funding round right now, about $50 million. So we have about $118 million of investment to date. Um, so we're still private. Um, and what we do in order to kind of build and grow the company, we track ourselves against other publicly traded companies in security where we're at our stage. Mm-hmm. To give you a sense, we're tracking higher than where Splunk was at our age. So we're grabbing market share. We grew 300 percent, 17 over 16. We grew double and a half, um, 17, uh, 18. Um, So it's high, high growth for us. Um, So and we're able to take a lot of market share from them also by our winning rate. So right now we're beating them more than 70 percent when we go to -to head-to-head battles um, at, at customers.
3: Nir, we got some news yesterday that Google had hired FireEye and some other top security consultants, um, in part because they had identified and terminated 39 YouTube channels that were linked to Iran. Um, so, how do you view your own partnerships as you start to see some other deals happening or a potential exit strategies? You look to raise more funding.
8: So to do security management right, we, it's all about the partnerships around you because you're kind of like Switzerland. Um, you're trying to work with well with everyone, if it's Microsoft or Google or Amazon or even any one of the security providers. So we have a very strong business development area and alliances where we build technical integrations with each one of these vendors to be able to ingest their data, make intelligence actions out of their data, and automate the response. So in order to kind of succeed in security management, by definition, you need to have a good eco-partner system around you.
3: Nir, I want to ask maybe a basic question. From your perspective, where do you see the most attacks coming? You know, we heard about YouTube from Google. We hear about Facebook. You have the Experian data hack. Where are you seeing most of these cybersecurity attacks because they are so complicated these days?
8: They are. Um, So... Uh, maybe I'll, I'll explain it depends really who the target is um and I can't share too much we do see a lot and uh, we have a front seat to a lot of these um um different attacks successful or not um what I would say is if you look at the at the government you know and our federal customers it's a lot about nation states yeah um and that would be that the Russians and the Chinese it's, it's it's not any different than what you hear about in the news we just get to see it front um the second one is if you're talking about a um, health. Um, and there's a lot of breaches around, um, different blues and churs and providers. Mm. Um, that's typically a lot of cybercrime rings. So those would come from Russia or the Ukraine and the likes. So it really depends on who the, the, you know, what's the data, what's the asset one's going after and who's interested in it. If it's a financial gain, it's typically the cybercrime rings. Uh, if it's for, you know, industrial or, um, economical purposes, it's going to be a nation-state behind it. Got it. And it's sometimes even hard to say because sometimes nation-states are going to use cyber crimes as kind of middlemen to conduct their work for them.
1: Nir Pollack, you are the chief executive officer of Exabeam. Joining us on the phone from San Mateo, California. Thanks so much for your time. Well, and he's smart. He can't
3: tell us too much information. He'll give away all the strategies. But Absolutely. that was uh, still very interesting. Very interesting. And
1: obviously, he is right in the middle of the issue, truly, of our times, especially as we get toward midterm elections. It feels like the headlines every day uh, remind us of all of those vulnerabilities on a corporate and governmental level. This is Bloomberg.
5: I'm in my car. I'll turn on the radio.
7: Hey, how about you let me drive?
1: Oh, no, 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 no.
7: Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Listen, mate, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. Just drive,
5: baby. It's the question Just drive,
2: baby. that drives us.
5: Drive.
3: Oh, the drive to the close music. I'm going to miss that next week when I'm no longer here on the afternoon shift. Uh, But you know what is good is we're looking at record uh, stocks across all of the major averages and joining us to break all of this down is Charlie Babrinskoy. Uh, Jason, he's the vice chairman and head of the investment group over at Ariel Investments. They have now about $13.6 billion in assets under management. He joins us from Chicago. Charlie, I just want to get your thoughts here. You talk about the length of the bull market is irrelevant. Um, We continue to see more record stocks today. The S&P, the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000, the Wilshire 5000. What's driving this rally and these record highs today?
4: You know, one comment I want to make is that stocks are supposed to hit records. And the reason they're supposed to hit records is because companies only pay out about half of the profits that they earn in dividends. They reinvest the other half in their business, or they use those uh, retained earnings to buy back stocks. So just in the normal course of things, stocks are going to be worth more every year. Uh, and that has happened for 100, 150 years. So stocks hitting records is really not some reason to be nervous about the outlook.
1: It's just a reason for us in the media to get really excited, Charlie. It's nothing more than that. I mean, we're Bloomberg after all. This is the, these are the cheap thrills we get, right? Um, so I got to ask you. You know, this is happening with a backdrop of global trade war new tariffs rolling on. It feels like almost every day talks breaking down with Mexico around NAFTA, and yet that doesn't seem to be playing into the market. Where do you come down on that?
4: I'd say the market is, is properly focused on what we call the three things, tariffs, treasury bonds, and Trump. Mm. And they the market is spending a lot of time evaluating all three of those. In our view, the market doesn't think that uh... trump is going to be a big issue we've all gotten used to the things he says out of washington that the irreverent tweets uh... but there's unlikely to be a change in in government Um, treasury bonds everybody pretty much understands that the federal reserve is going to tighten they've been very uh, open about what they're going to do and so in higher interest rates do matter but people understand that. The wild card is tariffs. There's no doubt about it. People like myself are optimistic that we are going to get a new deal with Mexico, probably a new deal with Canada, and we'll accomplish something on China. And the reason we're optimistic is President Trump's supporters, or farmers tend to be supporters of President Trump. And Tariffs would be very tough on farmers, and so we think he will do what he has to do to make sure that they don't feel the brunt of this in the next... Three months.
3: Charlie, I want to quickly go back to the second T that you mentioned. Treasuries. We heard from uh, Fed Chairman Powell. We heard from. Uh, we will hear from some other Fed officials in Jackson Hole later on at this hour. I want to ask a simple question about how do equities perform in the face of rising rates, and at what level in rates do you see or you think we'll see to where the rotation out of equities into bonds starts to happen that hurts stocks as those yields start to become more and more attractive.
4: That is the great question. And uh, unfortunately, I and other people don't know for sure. But the basic rule is that if interest rates go up because we have a strong economy and because people are not rushing to safety, then that's okay. The market can do okay with a strong economy and higher rates. The dangerous period is when you get higher inflation pushing up interest rates. That you have the bad without the good. And so that's what happened in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. You had a lot of inflation, didn't have a strong economy, and the market can get hit hard. A higher discount rate also means that companies who are making money in the distant future, the market brings those future earnings back at a higher discount rate, and so growth stocks and tech stocks tend to do badly when interest rates are increasing.
1: So, Charlie, i got to ask you about a name that apparently you like, and that's CBS, which obviously has been in the headlines for you know, not a lot of great reasons over the past uh, few months and for all sorts of things. Uh, why do you like that stock?
4: Because our investment philosophy is based on finding companies with a great long-term outlook that have some kind of short-term problem. We think the market tends to focus on the short-term and the headlines, as you correctly pointed out. There are short-term problems. There's no doubt about it. But we think that over the next two years, uh, CBS earnings are going to be up about 50%. Over the last three years, they've been up 60%. So the fundamentals at, at CBS are excellent. There's no distribution system that can live without having CBS programming. Content matters more than ever. More dollars are spent in political advertising every year, and all of that benefits CBS, and yet the stock is trading for less than 10 times earnings because of these short-term issues around the merger with Viacom.
3: Charlie, we don't have a lot of time. In 30 seconds or less, uh, can you talk to us about the retail sector, some of the biggest losers, say, in the S&P 500 are Foot Locker, Gap, Macy's, L Brands? What's your take on some of the retail and the consumer sectors?
4: Just wildly disparate results. You've got some of those names that have done spectacularly well this year. We own Nordstrom. It's done wonderfully. Macy's has actually done well. Home Depot's done well. And other names have gotten crushed. Uh, the J.C. pennies of the world, obviously, um Sears has performed very badly. So it's just haves and have-nots. The haves are taking much more share, mostly if they get the e-commerce part of it right. If they don't, there's really no bottom.
1: Truly a place where people are treading carefully. Charlie Babrinskoy, vice chairman and head of, investment, uh, head of the investment group at Ariel Investments, $13.6 billion under management, joining us from Chicago.
5: For
0: listening to Coast to Coast, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.